it is logical to improve our scanning capabilities instead of observing non-essential systems. These readings are within acceptable parameters. Correct. However, this region has never produced this type of anomalous energy. Does that not seem... strange? Anomalies, by definition, are strange. Something about this feels off. Feels off? You have been spoken to about this before, Talyn. It is illogical to ignore something of statistical significance. I must inform the captain. She has lost all control. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, avoiding death and cowering. (laughs) And we have a very special guest this week, um, throwing a rebellious fit like only a Vulcan can, Scott Hardy. It was highly logical to bring me back. Thank you for having me, guys. Stop with the outbursts. <laughs> this is really embarrassing. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say before we get into the to the episode proper, um, I think I might now be your highest, you know, appearance, most appearance guest by this point. Oh, huh, yeah. Okay, I, I can buy Probably. that. Yeah. Is that an honor or a dishonor? I don't know. Well, my next goal is to overtake the amount of appearances that your fallen comrade Ben Yong did. So I, I then surpass him. So he has 15. Yeah, it probably That's won't be goal. that hard. Well, no, no. <laughs> I think any guest can probably hit that mark pretty easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, Kim, what is the name of this episode? Wej Doj. That's the best I can get. Um, so yeah, it's the latest episode of Lower Decks, the penultimate of season two. And kind of a crazy episode. Yeah, we're following the exploits of the Lower Decks on Vulcan and Klingon ships. While those Starfleet ensigns on the Cerritos, they go on Commander Hangout Day, except for Boimler, who finds himself desperate to socialize with senior officers. Cam, we both said, uh, yeah, maybe Lower Decks had a bit of a rough start to the season. I really do think it's on... uh, you know, fire at this point. It's firing on all cylinders. I think this is another excellent addition. I am very curious about uh, what Freeman's little chat with Starfleet means for the climax of the season. But uh, what's your initial take on this? I really enjoyed this episode in that it was doing the things that I thought Lower Decks, it was the only Trek show could do, which is really expand. Uh, A couple weeks ago, you and I, Tyler, were talking about we could get a flashback episode at some point. And we saw in like season one, there's like the film era episode. And this week, just being able to hop to three different locations and chronicle, you know, the lower decks crews on all of them, as well as some, just some little side bits as well. You can only do that animated. They ain't going to build the sets for that on a discovery episode or a Picard episode. And so just in that regard, it was very ambitious. And I thought really delivered, had some nice themes going on as well. Um, the only little, I guess, nitpick I had with it was comedically, I found it was kind of maybe a little lesser than some of the others around it, but I thought overall it was pretty impressive. What about you, Scott? Initial thoughts? I think this was the most fun I've had watching Lower Decks so far. And that includes season one for me. Ooh. Um, I think this is, I agree with you, Cam. The scope of what Lower Decks could be, I think, was finally realized in this episode. You know, they realized that they could do other things other than just a stereotypical Star Trek episode. And so they gave us these some very interesting twists I'm sure we'll get into. And I think allowed it for some comedic gold. I was laughing more than I have ever laughed on this show. Yeah, I'm more with you, Scott. Like, I did get some solid laughs out of this one. It's really kind of cool. And, like, Cam, you mentioned it last week in that it seemed as such an obvious premise that a series had not seized on, you know, where the lower decks and senior officers switch roles. And this kind of seems obvious, too, just like putting yourself in the point of view of other alien vessels, you know, all going towards the same events. I think that was a very cool idea. Before we dive deeper, though, Scott, overall, what have your thoughts been so far on season two of Lower Decks? Exceedingly 
disappointing um, and maybe that's a, a a powerful statement maybe that's too much but you know i had low hopes going into season one and eventually the the, the show excelled itself for me the last few episodes no small parts being a particular highlight for me was some of the best it, it could do and i was like oh great season two is going to be fantastic and then season two starts off with maybe some of the worst lower decks they've delivered hmm. so far and so I was quite disappointed for some time. But in the, this, this like back half, I think it started to pick itself up. It started to figure out that you really should tell one story, um, which I think is what it excels at instead of doing a bunch of things at once. What was the um, highlight for you this season before this episode? Was there one that stood out as, this is closer to what I want from Lower Decks? I think it has to be last week's episode with the, the old switcheroo um and you know the lower decks being the the bridge crew i think that was an interesting concept that they had fun with which mm -hmm. is what you want from the show yeah it is weird how lower deck seems like a show that struggles through each season until it finally hits like a really strong point like kind of towards the back half i hope this isn't a trend we can look forward to for season after season after season because that would get really old I think credit where credit's due, Tyler, I think on the episode last week said, it may have been you can, but it, it's more likely to be Tyler. It was an intelligent comment mm. um, that they seem to start off in the writer's room and just throw ideas around. They're like, oh, let's do all these things. And then they realize they run out of ideas by halfway through and go, actually, just, just do one at a time. And they, they realize that they should be more precise. But they don't figure that out until the end of the season. And I'm very worried that that's how season three is going to go yet again. They just have way too many ideas bumping around in their heads and they, they mash it all together uh, beyond what I think is enjoyable in those early goings. And I, I, I just hope that they realize that the last half of each season has been stronger than what they've been doing typically. It's not hard to measure really, even if they just take a, a cursory look at IMDb, like the ratings for these last few episodes are really high. This last one I think has like right now, like a 9.3, which would make it the highest rated lower decks episode to date like there's a pretty significant difference just in terms of you know i know imdb users who are these people anyway are you rating movies and tv episodes because i'm not but nonetheless people out there are rating them and there's very significant difference between early season versus these late episodes do you think the producers are actually looking at the imdb scores though I, I don't think it's like part of their research, but it just seems like something someone would stumble across at some point. Maybe a few of them. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's how they gauge what their success rate is. I, I think it's more mm -hmm. of like a gut feeling on their part, what they like to do, you know, what uh, really hits them when they create a product. Uh, and look, I think you're going to get more of their feelings are going to emerge from following like social media, like Twitter or Instagram and seeing what reactions are there from uh, fans you know and i you're gonna get a lot of positive you're also gonna get a, a lot of negative via social media I, I just don't know if imdb is necessarily the litmus test i think it's actually a very useful tool for us just to gauge it uh you got like a solid metric out of it and again ken as you said it, it's from the people that feel so inclined to rate and, and so that is kind of skewed to a certain degree but it, it's not as if you go on imdb and you find out that you know uh, best of both worlds has like uh, a three out of 10 or anything like that, yeah. it, it generally skews towards what uh, typically fans like. And also to be fair, um, this season was like done with a while back. So it's not like they can pivot based on, you know, early season reviews or anything. I just hope like maybe going forward, they kind of just get a better sense of where their strengths lie in a season as opposed to what they've kind of been repeating twice now. Yeah, well, let's circle back around into this episode in particular. Like this to me, as soon as they flashed over to the Klingon ship, uh, I was just like, oh, I get what this episode is all about. I am going to enjoy this. Uh, just seeing them in those crummy hammocks that they have to sleep in. Like that was just like a funny sight gag right there. It made me think of episodes like uh, Soldiers of the Empire, Sons and Daughters of Deep Space on Deep Space Nine, in, in which we actually did see adventures on the Rotaran. You get a sense of that. Uh, in both situations, I, between those three episodes, like, what do you think kind of um, finds a way of showcasing life aboard a Klingon ship? Do you have a thought, Scott? I, well, I hope it isn't Lower Decks. I hope it isn't this episode. I, I hope it's a, maybe a bit more structured. Um, I, I hope that the Lower Decks crew are not actually slopping out the gach barrels in reality. I, I, I'd like to think it's more towards the Deep Space Nine episodes than this. 
Is that what like Alexander was doing on the Rotaran before <laughs> <laughs> before his uh, big DS9 episode? <laughs> What's like some of the other jobs that you could be doing on a bird of prey? Some of the worst jobs. Obviously walking the targ is one. Yeah, yeah. Uh sharpening the mechleth. I think that's one. Yeah. I think a lot of weapon sharpening just in general. Mm. Um I don't think you're doing a lot of cleaning judging from some of the Klingon ships I've seen. I think you've got to wipe a lot of the pink blood off the floors mm. and the quarters, you know. And the blood wine would be everywhere. Like, I would not want to be in charge of the mess hall. That would be a nightmare. One of those sticky floor bars that you go to and you're just like, ugh, you can feel it. it hasn't been cleaned in a while. Yeah, yeah. And we call that the Camby here in Vancouver, uh, Scott. <laughs> yeah. You'll make it here one day. <laughs> I do think, like, if you're going to be a lower decks member, Klingon uh, ship would be the worst way to go. I don't know if there's many species out there that would be worse. Like, I'm trying to think beyond this episode, if there's other alien, the Malon. I wouldn't want to be a lower decks on a Malon ship. <laughs> um, well, I, I also recall, though, um, that Martok, he was from a lower caste, and so he was not actually allowed to do soldier duties so he had to start off as like a cook aboard like a klingon ship so it is funny like how even a, a lower decks officer aboard a klingon ship they still are above i guess you know the the kitchen crew just because they're within the warrior caste of society but you can't trust those cooks can you are, are they even cooking things if the gach is still alive and they have replicators what are they there for is it sort of like sushi where they're not really cooking they're just like organizing it to look appealing okay. i don't really even know yeah. what a chef would be doing it seems like they mostly slop it in a bowl really but what do i know i mean maybe i'm just being very insensitive to um klingon delicacies how dare you um hopping over to the klingon uh, uh or not the klingon the vulcan vessel i i keep wondering this could a Vulcan spinoff, even just like a 10-episode miniseries, could that work or would it just be, I don't know, a, a little bit too uh, difficult on your patience <laughs> to deal with all of these uh, logical folks at all times? You're shaking your head, Scott. I, I mean, after season one of Picard, I think I'll take anything else. So <laughs> sign me up for uh, the Vulcan Exploratory team. I want to watch that instead. Is it all the same actors, but they all just have pointy ears? Sure. <laughs> One of them have an eye patch and a French accent. I don't care. <laughs> well, I remember, Tyler, you and I, I, I don't remember what episode it was. I think it was something to do with spinoffs or something. We've done so many podcast episodes. But um, we were debating, could you do a Vulcan show? And the thing that we really butted up against was just like tone-wise, it would get really dull because all the characters have a very similar cadence um there's not a lot of difference in terms of the personalities so it would get really tough to watch um this episode i think underlined that and emphasized that that would be the problem but found a way to make it funny like all my favorite elements of this episode were the vulcan ship just this character who is entirely logical and um <laughs> makes complete sense to the viewer is just being told you're out of control you're being rebellious, and there is no sign of rebellion whatsoever to a uh, non-logical being. Well, I genuinely enjoyed the Tillin character. Like, it seems as if she's going to be joining the Cerritos, you know, with her departure to Starfleet. I guess that's what they're telegraphing to me. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Um, I, And I thought it was, like, a genuinely good way to kind of encapsulate, like, a character arc within what must have been, like, six six and a half minutes of screen time mm -hmm. you know like that is like a pretty incredible feat to accomplish i'm looking forward to wherever we see her pop up in starfleet next and we've always had vulcans that aspired to be vulcan whether it's spock or tuvok they always fit fairly well within vulcan society spock was a bit of an outcast but was always aspiring to fit in if you have a vulcan that sort of within Vulcan society seems a little rebellious. There's some angles you could take on that character on Lower Decks you might not be able to do with some of those other famous characters. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I got a major, like, Savic vibe from mm. her. Maybe a half Romulan. Uh-oh, uh-oh, half Romulan. <laughs> I was going to say, or half human or something like that. Yeah. Now, is this Robin Curtis Savic or Christielli Savic? <clears throat> who, 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 who charges less? Uh, or... or... Or Kim Cattrall first draft of the Undiscovered Country, Savick. 
any of them. I'll take any of them. But like, I, I, I got that whole, or, or like Spock, you know, that has that. She's saying things like, "I feel this." Vulcans don't say that. Um, right. And so I felt that there was something more to the character than just the average Vulcan. It, was it almost kind of like to Paul vibes then? I, one of my issues early on in Enterprise is like I kept wondering like why to Paul seems to be the most emotional Vulcan we've ever met but they really did kind of uh square that circle eventually she became my favorite character on enterprise and i think Talyn is she's kind of like um cut from the same cloth as to paul just from you know the the four or five minutes or so that we've seen of her at this point the only thing was like to paul you got a good sense fit in with the other vulcans like she was their representative on the ship versus Talyn, who seems like a bit of an outlier within the Vulcans. T'Pol was kicked out of the Vulcan expeditionary group, though. Like, she ends up, you know, she's not even seconded to Enterprise anymore. She's officially, like, a member of the crew who has to wear a cat suit for some reason. Well, you make me wear a cat suit for all these recordings. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yes. Uh, (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Uh, I'm not complaining. Wait, is it like that uh, Venus Williams uh, tennis outfit in which uh, she got uh, the officials like find her for wearing? Oh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> you lost me with that reference. <laughs> okay. No, it, it was a pretty big sports story uh, uh, sometime in the past year or so. But uh, it was showing kind of... Emphasis on sports story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cam, if you had to watch any sport, what would it be? Um, That's really tough. I mean, I guess, you know what? Having gone to the odd game... I would say hockey's probably the most watchable for me. Okay, I would have guessed soccer, but no. uh, what about you, Scott? I am actually uh, partial to a bit of tennis. Yeah. Do, do you know the, uh, the? I forget if it's Venus or Serena, but do you know the story that I'm talking about, how she got in trouble with that uh, outfit she was wearing? Okay, you asked me if I was going to pick a sport. Now, I do not watch the sport. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. okay. Cam, use that Williams sister... Uh, uh, photo for our artwork this week, okay? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, jumping back over to the Cerritos, though, um, you know, any shout-out that they give to the uh, Final Frontier, uh, Star Trek V, I will go for that Go Climb a Rock shirt, making a comeback. I, I feel as if I need to make one of my own. I, I-, I really dig this. I will forever be an apologist for uh, that movie, but uh, watching Boimler scramble to make uh, a bridge buddy, as he calls it, like that was just kind of a delightful uh, part of this show for me too. Now, Scott, you have a Go Climb a Rock shirt, don't you? I have, and not a single person has ever recognized it when I've worn it outside. That doesn't surprise me at all. No, no. I've worn it to Star Trek conventions, and I've not had comments on it, to be fair. I think it's actually quite the deep cut in the film, you don't really pay attention to his shirt when he's on the mountain. Well, I mean, I do, but well. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> no, I loved that reference. And that's something that like Lower Decks does really well is just working little references like that, where they don't call the attention to themselves. They're not demanding that like, hey, viewer, look at this. But they're there and they're really funny if you get them. Uh, speaking of a reference, I think went over my head uh, both times I watched the episode, but do you guys know what Boimler is referring to when he was worried that he could uh, be reassigned to a penal colony where he has to meet with the enemy to form a new civilization? Oh, no. It sounded like TOS to a certain degree, but I, I could not place it. I was hoping you would enlighten me at this. You are the Trexperts here, you know. Uh, I, I don't think that's TOS. Um... Nothing's jumping to mind on a... I mean, there's a couple of Penal Colony episodes because there's Whom Gods Destroy and Dagger yeah. of the Mine. Yeah. Uh, I don't recall anything about like ma- uh, mating there. There was yeah. nothing in Star Trek VI, was there? No, I don't I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't know. I, I just... It felt as if it was supposed to be reference, and I, I, I just scratched my head for a long, long time trying to think of what it might be. But... Um, Wouldn't it be crazy if it was the animated series? <laughs> <laughs> it could have been. Um, yes. Um, children, they need to learn about mating with the enemy. Um, okay, I'll tell you this. We've really struggled with Ransom for a while. I think they've kind of found what it is that makes them work. And it's Ransom the ni- nice guy. It's not Ransom the jerk. I, I like Ransom the nice, encouraging um, officer who's maybe just a little bit dopey. 
um and then finding out that no one was from hawaii like uh, for a while <laughs> like um i i could go with it with the ben site i was just like um yeah you know like uh i could have born been born on like uh Bejor. i could have been born on uh, vulcan like that's totally fine as a human i can understand you know maybe a ben site uh he was uh there um you know for whatever reason the biggest laugh for me from this episode was when the Benzite was like, yeah, I'm not from Hawaii either. And then I was just like, okay, now I feel like an idiot. <laughs> like, I, was just like, I was like, it should have been super obvious to me. But, yeah. And then they all bond over being from moons. I yeah. thought that was funny. Um, yeah, I am with you on Ransom in that he was a character who... He seemed just like kind of broadly comic in season one. Like they, It was like, go for the obvious jokes. But I didn't really understand him as a character who i would follow on a show uh he felt like more of a punchline character but i really like what they've done this last handful of episodes and there's a moment at the end of this where um we find out ransom is like sent a cadet who i like the uh, black cadet outfit you know very similar to the 2009 movie but he sends a cadet over to ask boimler questions and that may be and we've had a couple amazing ransom moments so far but that may be my favorite ransom moment we've gotten so far i loved it What's your take on Ransom uh, and their journey with him so far, Scott? Uh, which I think has been up and down throughout the the first two seasons. Well, I always took him as like this guy who needed to be loved. He needed the attention of the captain and to be acknowledged as a good commander. And of course, a gym bro. So I obviously resonated with the guy because I need <laughs> everyone to say how good I am. And I, of course, spent all of my time in the gym. But um, where do you go with that in comedy? Like, how do you make that funny? And I think that's probably where they struggle, especially with that, that head thing in the first episode of season two. I do not understand that choice. Well, but, it becomes like one note, right? Yeah. yeah. And seeing the pivot into this, this like this doing good deeds secretly to seem, he doesn't want to seem, he, he wants to be cool, but he's doing things on the slide to help people. That, that little like nod to Boimler, I think was a very nice touch. Well, you look at the character of Riker, and there are so many absurd things with Riker that fans love to make fun of, whether it's the horn dog stuff, whether it's the trombone, the leg over the chair. It's all really funny. And that character has tons of comedic moments on TNG. But we also see him as a highly capable functioning first officer who we would be more than happy to have in charge of the ship we're on. So I think that's something that is important maybe when looking at a character like Ransom is to establish like, that he's genuinely good at his job, but he's a weird dude. I get that. You know, um, that, that storyline about Hawaii, though, it did remind me of the TNG episode of Lower Decks in which uh, Sam Lavelle walks up to Riker in 10 Ford and he, he announces, I think my grandfather was from Canada. And Riker just <laughs> looks at him and he's like, that's nice. <laughs> just kind of like, like, uh, because of course, I, uh, Riker's from Alaska and Sam's kind of uh the, the nervous uh ensign in front of him but um it's just kind of little uh, moments i don't know if that was a direct shout out but it did kind of uh, I, I wonder if they took inspiration from that uh, from the tng episode do you think that there's been a bit of a breakthrough with uh ransom too in that they've had a lot of his good moments being related to boimler versus in season one it was like they would always put mariner in a room with him and mariner yeah. would just bark at him yeah yeah i think that's a kind of a good point like i, I think it's good if you can like kind of try different character chemistry see who bounces off whom um i i think the ransom boimler pair up works more for me than uh what we got with mariner last year in which it seemed as if they were attracted to each other and then that was completely dropped very very soon after yeah and then you would just have scenes where they were like fighting or she'd be making like comments at him or overshadowing him um you know in the uh the eyes of Captain Freeman and him being really insecure about that. Like it's tough. I think when you have a, a first officer character who is kind of goofy and we want to see them be professional when you have a character undercutting them every time they're in the room with them. Well, the other thing I, I think this episode reveals is why the Packlids have been so troublesome this past year. <laughs> um, you know, we've got the, uh, the Klingon uh, captain who uh, previously the first officer who took the life of the, uh, the other uh, commander there, but uh, I supplying the Packlids with weapons. And, and then it was, I alluded to at the front, but Freeman was just like, okay, well let's uh, inform Starfleet and something will have to be done about this. I, I do wonder if that's what the finale is going to be centered on. I honestly, I don't, 
I don't need motivation behind the packlets. That actually kind of takes away the fun. I just like things like the 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 computer voice uh, for the packlet ship that's just like red alarm, red alarm. It just it, it sounds <laughs> stupid, you know. And even the fact that Packlet's spaceship was called Packlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had that one highlighted in my notes. Yeah. I think this is like the perfect like antagonist for lower decks i only wonder if like are they gonna try to wrap up the whole pack led as kind of antagonist uh as part of like the season finale or do you think it's going to be going on scott i would like to see it continue i mean the thing i i found interesting about the change they made here with this whole idea that the klingon commander was supplying the weapons is it almost retconned a little bit that was set up in no small parts in season one where they're they turn up and they try and scavenge the Cerritos. They try and take stuff from it with those cutting beams, kind of like Borg would, um, that they were assimilating technology. Whereas now it's said that they were just receiving it. So what were the cutting beams about? Uh, you know, maybe uh, they can walk and chew gum at the same time, although they are packed, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't count on that. But uh, I, I think both things, I can rationalize both uh, things happening in my head, so... But I, I agree with the, uh, and one of my favorite jokes in this whole episode was the red alarm. I, I could not get enough of red alarm. That's <laughs> one of the funniest things I've heard. I'll, I'll save my other favorite for a little while. Well, make it your uh, ringtone. <laughs> I was going to say they should release it as a ringtone. Yeah, that would be a great idea. I, I wonder if, because I agree the packlets are the perfect you know foes for this series. I wonder though if maybe in like season three or four, they keep packlets but kind of push them a little more into the background so they're always a presence but we could explore another potentially goofy alien species played up a little more you know the way that like the dominion are a big threat in ds9 but we spend a season with the klingon arc um the dominion don't go away but we can focus a little more on klingons for a season so i'd be down for that i just don't know who would deliver the right comedic kind of spark for a season on lower decks because the packlids are pretty perfect. Oh, I think you bring back the outrageous Okana, and uh, he's uh, your antagonist uh, after his DJ uh, <laughs> session went awry because of the Cerritos crew. Well, I mean, that would be great, but I don't know. Is there anyone that jumps out for you, just alien species-wise? Maybe, like, those fish aliens from the outrageous Okona? You mean uh, <laughs> Mick Fleetwood, which is yeah. still amazing? Um, because they've got, like, the um, the silly look. I'm thinking about, like, aliens that are just, like, silly in nature. You know, like, I I'm trying to, like, rack my brains about, like, non-Federation species that would kind of fit the bill. Because I think when you're trying to bring antagonists, they're supposed to be threatening to a certain degree. And they, they failed with the Ferengi. Mm -hmm. And then they turned them into one of the most, like, layered alien species by the time we get to Deep Space Nine. And I think they failed with the Packlids, and that's why they're turning into so much comedic value here on uh, Star Trek Lower Decks. Well, I joked about them earlier. What about the Malon? That would be fun. If they could work the Malon in, Like yeah. that would actually be great. I don't know how they'd do it, but um, I, I don't care. I don't care. But they go through a wormhole sure. and wind up in the Alpha Quadrant or something like that. Yeah. Uh, is there silly aliens that pop out to you at all, Scott, that might work as antagonists for the Cerritos? I was rummaging around my brain trying to think of a, a particular alien, but I think actually my uh, concept would be you just do something different. The, this show relies so heavily on nostalgia and, and callbacks. Maybe take this opportunity to pivot into a new alien that you create, and it allows you to, you could mm. make a funny, silly thing, or you could make an actual threat to the Federation that we haven't explored. This is a new part of the timeline that we're not dealing with right now, they could have something. I mean, Riker mentions the uh, the Zinti in the Picard season that they're fighting with. Why don't we have the Zinti turn up? I actually yeah. think like, doing something new is pretty good as well. But I'll just throw in one other species in there, mostly just for the look of it, but the, the Lorians, uh, the, the Morns species. like That could be fun hmm. if uh, suddenly we find out more about the Lorians and their many stomachs and uh, their uh chatty nature as uh we found out uh but um yeah um I, you know maybe as we kind of wrap up our thoughts on this one uh we are going to jump into kind of a a different sort of thing for the rest of the episode there's a reason we want scott on this episode too um not just because he's uh always there with the great insights but um 
seeing Stevens burst out of the holodeck in his Tudor era attire, that got <laughs> that, that was like one of the best sight gags for me uh, in this. And just seeing everybody in their off duty uh, outfits, like that was really fun for me. Um, anything jumping out to you guys too? Um, well, I just one thing I want to touch on. We were talking about you know uh, alien species and whatever. Does Lower Decks need to create its Q, its sort of recurring individual villain character, one that could be really quirky and funny that we could carry through the ongoing adventures? I'll say uh, it's a tough question to ask because when they created Q for TNG, they didn't know that mm-hmm. he was going to become like so iconic. You know, like, yep. and the thing is, oftentimes when you try to create an antagonist that's going to be the next big antagonist, you end up with a Ferengi on TNG, and it de- it doesn't work. I think, like, let it happen naturally, and because you know, it's not like the um, not not like Deep Space Nine created the Cardassians, but they really developed them into something more layered and interesting than I think what we got in TNG, and same same with the Ferengi as well, uh, same with the Bajorans. So I look. They don't necessarily need to create their brand new alien antagonist for it to be a success uh, moving forward on Lower Decks. But uh, I don't know, what's your take on this, Scott? Because you were kind of pushing for that idea a moment ago. Yeah, I, I think this is their opportunity now. They, they've proved they can uh, deal with established canon and, and pay tribute to it in a nice way. And also flesh things out. They fleshed out the um, hackleds to, to, to no end. We know way more about them that they're completely stupid. Which is great, uh, and their <laughs> their spies aren't very good either. But um, <laughs> I, I want them to try something new. I want them to figure out an alien species, and as I said, it could be a comical species like the Packleds or like the Duplers, something funny, or it could be an actual menace to the Federation, and let Captain Freeman have to step up with her crew and have them work together against a, a foe that's actually stressing them. You mean like if they went to the planet of the Wind Dancers? Yes, oh, yes. I'd, I'd love to see that come back. It. I'd love to see that come back. Oh, it's going to come back. I can guarantee it. Uh, uh, folks, do you think that, nightmares, that Tog, the uh, the Klingon lower deck fella that eventually became captain of that ship, do you think he'll make a return maybe even by next week's finale? I wondered about that. Like, he didn't jump out the way Talin did, where it felt like that was a character very much being set up for a future reappearance. I don't know about him. I mean... It, Part of me is just interested in the fact that they're setting up, you know, that the um, Klingons here were interested in destabilizing Federation control. That feels like the sort of story you don't just drop after this episode. Like we're going to see some sort of payoff to this in the future. So he would make sense as a character to bring back and acknowledge that sort of storyline. I just get the sense that if Talin's going to be going over to the Cerritos, and this is just my guess based on how they're telegraphing things, I, I think they kind of want to have this build up in the finale and what she's there and Tog is there for mm-hmm. some reason. Maybe, maybe they're setting up for future um, ideas in season three. Uh, I, I was totally off base when I, I thought they were telegraphing that Mariner would become the new security chief after Shax's quote-unquote death and Boimler's uh, transfer over to the Titans. So I might just, I have a tendency to read too much into some things that might just be kind of offhanded. So um, yeah, uh, the, the other thing, guys, so the, the name of the episode, it's Klingon for three ships, but um, I don't know if that's fair because we did see a Borg cube lower decks at the very end. Um, that had me howling watching the, the Borg <laughs> lower decks by the very end too. That is a screensaver, um, or like the equivalent of a Yule log. That would not be a good show. <laughs> we do need like the uh, Borg sleeping chamber Yule log uh, for the coming <laughs> holidays, don't we? Um, I would love that. That would be fantastic. I just want the, uh, the 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 humming as like a white noise thing, like a sleep mm. tune, like I, I'm in my alcove, snug, like a Borg drone. But- <laughs> And then the wake-up alarm is like, we are the Borg. Your likeness <laughs> will be assimilated to our resistance. Wake up screaming come. every day. I wake up screaming anyway, so hey, it's just it's welcome at this point. I was going to make a, uh, a reference to that episode where Chakotay was having dreams about uh, being the boxing ring, and that's why uh, Scott wakes up screaming. <laughs> so it makes me wake up screaming just thinking about that episode. The dream aliens, um... Cam. what i also liked about this episode was it really emphasized the importance of lower decks characters um both with the klingons and the vulcans and that they tend to maybe think outside of what the command 
would normally think of and maybe they have a better solution for what could ultimately lead to disaster um i thought that was just kind of a nice message at the end there scott any final thoughts uh before you jump over to our next segment the only thing that really stands out to me i think it goes to show why this episode's done so well with fans on imdb is I think they've figured out that you need to have your stories tie up together at the end. I think you've spoken about this on one of your previous episodes. Um, you know, just talking off a, a film that me and Cam are actually covering on Spy Hearts next week, uh, The Day of the Jackal. It has all these multiple story threads, but by the end of the film, it comes together perfectly. And this episode did exactly the same thing. You've got all these little stories, all these little, little twists. By the end of the film, it all culminates in one big, you know, catharsis. And I think that's what makes this episode work so well is it all ties together in the end. Whereas you've had the first half of the season, it's just all over the place. I, I think that's a great insight. Like, I, I totally agree with you, Scott. I have a question for you, Scott. Um, what would you like to see in the finale next week? Well, I was going to mention it before when we were talking about it. I have a fear about what's going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to say it now because if I want, I want my prediction to be wrong. So if I hmm. say it out loud, it probably will. Um, I, I know neither of you have played Star Trek Online. Right. I... I played for about i'd say to the point where you design your alien and then i um or is that star trek online is that the same I, one? You, I think you designed quite early on so maybe i mean if you yeah. stopped in the first hour maybe yeah i got to that point i was on the bridge but anyways i, I sorry to interrupt just to clarify my um three minutes of playing star trek online <laughs> you managed about as much as i did but um in that in that game which isn't considered canon by any stretch, but it has had a lot of the talent from the show to voice in their characters and that sort of thing. The Federation has a breakdown with the Klingons again, and they go to war. And I'm just wondering if they're going to lean into that. I, I agree with you. Mm. I don't want that to happen. I don't find it interesting. We've been there, done that. I like the idea more of the Klingons being our allies, even though there could be disruptions. I also just wonder where we left them off on Deep Space Nine in that they were in a profoundly weakened state. You know, they, they acknowledged that. Uh, it was going to take them like a decade to try to recover. I think I like the idea of the Klingons trying to reform substantially under the guidance of Martok. I, I don't know if I like the idea of the Martok's empire going to war with uh, the Federation at this point. Have they made any mention of what the Klingons are up to on Picard yet? Like like an offhand mention or anything? I think they've purposely avoided that. Uh, that yeah. That's my okay. recollection. Yeah, Yeah, because I don't remember any tossed off sentence or anything about the Klingons. Cam, do you have any predictions for uh, what the uh, finale might entail? I, I do think we're going to have some sort of resolution here with whatever's going on with... Um, you know, the Paclids and the Klingons. I, I think so. Like, it just feels like a weird thing to set up and not pay off in your finale. And this show, while not heavily serialized, has carried over elements. Um, obviously, the Titan stuff as well. So that's kind of my hope that, like, we've had fun with the Paclids all season. I don't know that it makes sense to keep doing Paclid stories all through season three. So... I'm hoping we just get some sort of really fun culmination to maybe that story and we can head off in a different direction in season three, even if it does still involve Paclids in some way. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, look, why don't we jump over the next segment? And if we come up with any final thoughts on this episode that we want to share, we can do that in a few moments. But uh, Cam, you and I, we realized, um, well, we've had a lot of time to make up for uh, during the pandemic. And you and I saw a total of three movies in five days, I think, in theaters, uh, where we yeah. uh, did The Many Saints of Newark, followed by Venom, Let There Be Carnage, followed by No Time to Die, the new James Bond film. Uh, one of the reasons we're so happy to have Scott on the show today is that uh, you and Scott, of course, co-host the Spy Hards podcast. And uh, you guys are devoted to the spy genre. You also are going to have kind of a, uh, a an episode on uh, No Time to Die coming out. Uh, probably by the time that this episode is, uh, this Star Trek Subspace podcast episode is available to listeners too. But um, maybe we talk about kind of our initial thoughts. We can lean away from some of the big spoilers. But um, I will defer to the, uh, the Spy Hards hosts first, and then I can offer my thoughts as well. Scott, do you want to go? You, living in the UK, you got to see it a week before we did. Um, you've been sitting with it. So uh, maybe give a bit of a yeah, teaser as to your thoughts. 
it's weird because we've been sitting and waiting for this film for so long now that it was yeah. just so weird actually just seeing it. Quite the experience, I have to say. Personally, for me, I think it's a good film. I think it has some bold choices that it makes. And I think it's a very good final Bond film in a series that have never done good final Bond films. You look at Diamonds of Forever, you look at Die Another Day, you look at License to Kill, maybe that's a good one. But A View to a Kill certainly isn't. Um, I won't get into spoilers because I know a lot of people haven't seen it yet, but it has some pretty powerful choices it makes. But I think overall I enjoyed it. There's definitely some dislikes I have too. I think overall I'm glad I got to see it in the cinema instead of watching it on a TV at home. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, I'm in the same boat. I really enjoyed this movie. And um, I think it has several sections that are incredibly strong. Like there will go down on the highlight reel of Craig movie moments. Um, it's also a movie that's going to polarize people. And I think that it's going to lead to a lot of interesting discussion. Something that Tyler and I encounter with Star Trek is um, a movie like Into Darkness is not great. Um, Star Trek Beyond is a better movie. But I think often Star Trek Into Darkness is more interesting to talk about because Star Trek Beyond only gives you so much. Um, no Time to Die, Fear Not, folks, is considerably better than Star Trek Into Darkness. But it makes those sorts of um, interesting story decisions that you would not expect from a franchise so known for following the template and the playbook. Um, I think we've never had, you know, as Scott said, we've never had really a great final Bond film for an actor. And this is the only time really where they've even sought to have an ending. It was always like, well, this guy's going to retire. We'll bring in another actor. Like the, the Craig era is kind of a closed off little storyline. And I think they deliver on that front. And it has some really incredible action, some incredible visuals. Um, it obviously has to carry over elements of Spectre, a movie a lot of people don't like. And I think it did a really good job making them work here. So I was happy overall. I've got some nitpicks mostly tied to the villain of the movie. Um, some other little decisions, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I invest a huge amount in the Madeline character yet, but maybe with revisits, I'll revise that opinion. But what about you, Tyler? Yeah, I thought that the first act, the way that director Kerry Joji Bukanawa just kind of captured the atmosphere of the Craig era of Bond, it was just completely enrapturing. The problem was that like, it kind of lost that momentum uh, of the first act as the movie continued, but I, I still was sucked into what was going on. Um, I just, I, I got a little lost by the time we get to the final act of this movie. And I, I kind of had to remind myself uh, why I cared when, as you alluded to, Cam, it was a pretty lame villain. Like, it, it wasn't very interesting. I was, <laughs> Cam, I walked out of the theater uh, and I was like, hey, I, I sure enjoyed um, X. Uh, villain more. I, I don't want to say the villain because it might spoil things, but there was a far more magnetic um, actor playing another antagonist in this one that I, I thought was far more interesting, despite the limited screen time uh, versus Rami Malek, who's a great actor. I, I really like him. Overall, this movie works for me more than it doesn't. I think that Craig has done a magnificent job with being James Bond. This is an actor who cares a lot about the character, and you can tell that that really comes through with uh, what is going on in this film. So, look, in a very bizarre pandemic year of cinema, I'm glad that just just a feeling, honestly, Cam, when you and I were sitting there in the big screen watching what was going down, like Scott said, like I'm glad I did not watch this on my TV at home. Like that's all I can say. James Bond is meant for the silver screen. You can understand why Eon fought so hard um, that James Bond, No Time to Die, would be a theatrical feature and not streaming on Amazon or something. I also think they kind of know like, that it's just going to make tons and tons of money. Like It set the record for the franchise for opening night showings. And this so, is during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So I think people just want to get out and you know, live life again. Tyler, I, I'm actually quite curious to maybe dig a little bit further into your thoughts because, I, I mean, out of the two of, of, of Cam and I, Cam is much more of a Bond fan than I am. I, I will consider myself a quite a diehard fan, but Cam is the guy who knows it all. Uh, where would you consider yourself on that scale? Oh, uh, I, uh, I, would, I would say a casual Bond fan. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely have not seen all the movies, 
there's I, I've probably seen about 75% of them, you know, and uh, I got into it, honestly, with GoldenEye, the video game. And that's kind of what drew me to the franchise. And then it was just, uh, I saw a lot of uh, replays of the film on uh, films on cable television. So that's kind of where I am. But honestly, like Casino Royale for me, that's just one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, period. Mm-hmm. Like, that is my favorite Bond movie. And I, I definitely put it in a list of my top 50 movies of all time as well. Well, the reason I ask is, I suppose out of the three of us then, you're probably closest to the average cinema goer when it comes to watching this film. Do you think it works on that level? Uh, Do you think someone who doesn't have much of a connection to Bond, maybe they've seen Casino Royale, maybe Skyfall, could walk into this film and and enjoy it? Yeah, because I say, like I'm just speaking to somebody uh, at work today, uh, they were absolutely blown away by this movie. They absolutely loved it. I would consider that person to be more of an average moviegoer. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe something more representative of kind of, kind of the, this sounds so arrogant, but get used to it. We're talking to Tyler, but, but more of the kind of the, the plebeian um, <laughs> desires of uh, oh my God. cinema goers, you know? Oh, I think Tyler's going to be on that Vulcan ship by the sounds of it. That's, uh... <laughs> Uh, but yeah so uh, honestly i I don't think most people are going to get too hung up about maybe some of the continuity um the the, having past knowledge of what's gone on in the preceding four films i think a lot of people are going to be like oh cool that's an exciting action sequence or hey that character's cool that's fun like i i'm bond i I was listening to a podcast today and and they were talking about how the bond plots never really matter it's just nope they don't really make sense, and who cares? Um, even the movies where I, I was able to follow the plot, like I, I think Tomorrow Never Dies, I, I understand that plot yeah. quite easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, Casino Royale as well. But it, it's all about the atmosphere. It, it, Bond is more about a feeling than anything else. And I think as long as you accomplish that, what I think Fukunaga did quite well, I, I think that's a successful Bond entry there. And I think, you know, for me, Bond has always had a lot of the same appeal as Star Trek which when I'm watching the original series or TNG or DS9, it's all about obviously the character moments, but even just the weird moments. Those moments where you have this kind of this production that's coming out of this kind of this closed group of (laughs) lunatics and they work in moments where you go, this would not come out of a Disney project. This would not be a 20th century Fox film that would inject moments like this. And this movie had them. And I look at some of the ones maybe like Quantum of Solace, which felt really stripped down into an action movie, it doesn't offer that sort of charm. And this movie had it. It had enough moments where I was snickering kind of at a weird line. Like they just had some odd, you know, lines that you don't see that would like clear a major studio, you know, company versus like Eon, which is basically a family run company making these movies. Okay. So was Quantum of Solace the shortest Bond movie ever, Cam? Yeah, I believe it is dr no is also quite short the first ever one but uh i think uh quantum holds the title it's just funny that craig's um entries into the franchise include both the shortest and the longest right yep that is accurate yeah and he also holds the tenure the longest of any actor as well despite only making five films well what do you think craig's legacy is ultimately going to be uh scott just from your perspective and then maybe i'll throw that same question to you uh cam as well i think craig has potentially reinvented what bond will be going forward um instead of this sort of long continuity that we had arguably had between uh sean connery and pierce brosnan Daniel Craig's come in and said, look, we can do Bond without really leaning on the rest of it and have a complete story. And this film completes the story. It definitely does. Um, And I think that has shown Eon and the powers that be that you can do that again and it won't ruin everything that came before. Yeah, I think also it's introduced the idea that you can have character arcs for Bond, which, I mean, the past movies generally didn't care. It was about the job. Like it was about him going on the mission And the story was ultimately going to be about, you know, what's going on with the Bond girl or the villain or something like that. It was more plot focused in terms of what the overall picture was. I think that Daniel Craig and I, this is where you kind of have to deal with traditionalists versus people that are really into the Craig era, um, sometimes split, which is that I think because of what Craig's done, 
when they come to cast the next Bond actor, there's going to be a real drive and a you know appeal to the actor to want to do similar types of character journeys with Bond. Whereas in the past, that was not an element that actors were really afforded. I know Pierce Brosnan really wanted to do it and he got swatted down a lot. And I think now that Craig's done it, it's kind of like the cat's out of the bag. So I'm someone who often prefers the episodic nature of the old Bonds where it's much more of a mission-based sort of story. But I'm hoping we can find maybe a um, middle ground going forward where we can have character arcs, but have more of a mission-based ongoing series versus a everything is connected and it all ties to this one event sort of thing what about like a real ragged aged bonds um like age 64 where he's still trying to have a lot of fun like in the roger moore days and like (laughs) just going in the opposite direction maybe it's just like a one-off film or something like that you know like it like do we need to have like can't we do it like a george lazenby or a Brosnan. I mean, he's getting older. Well, I, I, I'm thinking Lazenby is like, why not like a, a one-off sort of Bond? Right, right. We did sort of have... Oh, I, oh, I sorry. As in like one shot. He has one film. Well, they yeah. have one film. Yeah. Like, I wonder if that might be something they could think about. Part of me thinks they put so much effort and time into finding these Bond actors. I think they want to invest in them once they get them. They, I don't know. Like, the thing with the Broccoli's is they tend to be both trend hoppers as well as try to predict where entertainment's going. So I think a lot in terms of the next, whatever the next Bond movie is, will depend on what's going on in pop culture as well as where they think pop culture is going to go. So and, and just for it's those really tough to call. Not in the know, uh, the Broccoli's, uh, that's the family that produces the uh, Bond film. Um, Cam is not talking about veggies coming to life and um, dictating the future of the franchise. <laughs> that's who I get my advice from, vegetables, yes. Yeah, you're into veggie tales, aren't you? That's right, that's yeah. right. Okay. Um, folks, uh, unless you know, uh, there's any final thoughts on this, maybe we can jump over to the Many Saints of Newark, Cam. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast and which it was our most anticipated film at least for me i think it was very much up there uh for you uh most anticipated of the fall mm-hmm. um this is of course a prequel for the soprano series any given day i kind of vacillate between about four or five shows as what my favorite of all time i've seen the sopranos tv show at least four times maybe five times like i, I i'm huge into it um this was not the movie i was expecting and uh you and i we walked out of it and we talked about like an hour hour and a half straight over <laughs> dinner about this movie and we yeah. were expressing our frustration but here's the problem cam there's no movie i've thought more about over the last week than this one i keep thinking about it in my head i've been reading think pieces i've been listening to podcasts i cannot dislike this movie all i can say is i found it frustrating it's not what i thought i was going to get and whatever disappointments I had pre-calculated to my head is for different sorts of things and not what we got here, which is a very kind of different movie than uh, you'd expect. So I I can't not recommend this. Like if you're a fan of The Sopranos, go see this. If you're a fan of gangster films, like I don't know if this is going to be all that meaningful (laughs) towards you. Um, But I, Cam, I've kind of come around. I guess I like this movie, but um, we listened to a podcast, uh, you and I both, uh, with uh, one of my fil- favorite film critics, maybe my favorite film critic, uh, Matt Zolder Sites, and the the host kept asking him, like, "Well, did you enjoy it? Well, d- did you enjoy it?" And he's like, "It doesn't matter so much whether I enjoy something; it's whether I'm interested in something." And the fact is, I guess I'm just really interested in this movie, despite my frustrations. But what's your uh, takeaway on The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel film? Yeah, um, I'm kind of in the same boat. Like, I thought the movie was kind of a mess. Um, But it's a mess where you can tell they're injecting a lot of ideas, a lot of symbolism, a lot of themes that you're like, okay, there's clear things for me to pick out and walk away I don't, I hesitate to say content, but at least intrigued by and to mull over. Um, there's some, you know, prequel stuff that's pretty interesting in terms of moments. It's a movie that very much works in moments where you'll sit there through an individual scene and be like, wow, like what a scene. And then you kind of look at the overall picture and you're like, what was that movie about? Like, I don't know that I can sum up what this movie's about very well. 
which is kind of an issue. There's another podcast I listened to, and I already told you this, Cam, but uh, one of the hosts said, like, the movie felt like a bento box. And, like, there was all these, like, components separated. And maybe, you know, he liked the uh, sashimi part of it, but not so much the teriyaki bowl. You know, it's like there's just all these little elements that we visit within the film that work really well and others that you're kind of like, what, what, what is this about? You know, but um, Cam, you also pointed out that the Sopranos, the series is always about like these really quirky digressions. Like that's kind of what made it. And it was kind of missing mm-hmm. to a certain degree, even though this movie was kind of fragmented in a way we don't typically see in movies like this. This wasn't even um like made. And, and I mean that like um storytelling wise, like a typical movie would. Yeah, it's, I don't, I don't really even know how to describe it to people who haven't seen it in terms of what it is, because like, there's been a few of these attempts to, um, you know, take a TV show and translate it to film, you know, I think of Serenity, I think of Veronica Mars, the most baffling film going experience of my life, having never seen the show. Um, I really like the movie, though, (laughs) having seen the show multiple times. (laughs) It was unwatchable to someone who had never seen the show. <laughs> and I feel like that's the case with this movie. Like the idea of sitting someone down who never watched the show, like good luck. Like I, I just don't think that would well, work. I, I, I think it would. I think they would just walk away feeling as if they were missing the punchline to all these things. Like it just like they, they would have kept feeling as if they didn't, they were supposed to know these people and references and they kept not getting it. But the, the movie still works without that though like and I'm not, I'm not saying the movie works as a whole but i don't think you need to watch sopranos like once through to understand what's going on in the film i suppose but i think your takeaway would just be like it didn't really end like it, it's it feels like a movie that it just so much of it depends on your knowledge of the show i think for real insight i, I definitely think like your knowledge of the show adds so much more meaning to it and i think if you don't have that knowledge of the show you're going to be walking away not really understanding a lot of the meaning but uh we've been boring you scots um what are your plans because i know you've seen the sopranos what are your plans for many saints of new york well i'll start by asking a question to both of you as you have seen it it has been released here as well i just not have got around to seeing it yet i do plan on watching it this weekend i hope my question is i've only seen the sopranos once I actually recently completed my first time ever watching it, and I would consider myself a fan of the show. So I'm looking forward to seeing the film. My question is, having only seen it once, is that enough to get these punchlines? Because from what you've just told me, you do kind of need to know who these people are to get the film. Do I need to know exactly who these people are having watched it four times, or is one watch mostly enough? I mean, I've only watched it once as well, and I did it around the time you did. Uh, I didn't have too much of a problem. I think I think anyone who, you know, more recently has been watching The Sopranos, maybe during the pandemic, or has only seen it once, I think they'll be able to piece it together. It's not relying on arcane characters from season five, really. Um, if you kind of know the main themes, you're going to pick it up okay. I'll also point this out, though, and this is why I do want to push back a little harder against you, Cam, against your assertion that you need to see the show to understand anything in the movie. Like, I, I the, the two main characters in this, they've never been in the TV series before. It's mostly what's going on in the periphery that helps your viewing of this film, that, that accentuates your viewing of this film. The, the problem is, I, I think that the, the issues are, are with this movie aren't so much tied to your previous knowledge of the series it's more tied to like storytelling issues in which it's it's very obvious that the writers of this wanted to make a different kind of movie like one atypical of the um formatting we see for you know uh act breaks for instance like uh, that we get in like most you know american cinema so that I don't know. I, I, I know I keep hitting kind of uh, the, the same note with that, but I guess we just kind of fundamentally disagree, Cam, on how extensive your knowledge of the series must be in order to follow along what, what the movie is trying to accomplish here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, I just think it would be, I think I would just walk out of it, like shrugging my shoulders being like, I have no idea what even that was really. Like it would just be so unsatisfying to me. I, I, I think it's, 
I know. We, we, I feel we'll keep going around in circles. So why don't we uh, yeah. uh, jump over to Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Um, I think we can spend much less time on this one. Um, I don't know, guys. It's uh, Venom, the first one wasn't very good, We, uh, but it was incredibly popular. This one, uh, it was watchable. It was uh, a very, very generous 97 minutes long. I didn't mind that. It's it's not a particularly good movie, but it's not painful to watch. It because it's doing what exactly it wants to do. It wants to be kind of a dumb comic book movie. The fact that it's not about like the end of you know life as we know it or you know, destruction of a city that that helps it quite a bit. Um, did I like this? Yeah, kinda. It was fine. You know, um, Cam, what was your takeaway on uh, the sequel to Venom? I think I liked it a little less. Uh, for me, it reminded me of a lot of the storytelling you got in 80s, 90s comic book movies in the wake of like Batman, where they're like, oh, well, these are pretty easy. Here's your good guy. Here's your bad guy. That's the plot. And Venom, you know, you've got some fun uh, rom-com type story tropes going on with the symbiote and Eddie Brock. But like, to me, everything just ties to the villain or tied to the villains and everything is just so simplistic that I'm just like, what's the point? Like we are 20 years into superhero storytelling on the big screen being developed to just pretty much perfection in a lot of ways. And when I am like watching retrograde stuff like this, it's just kind of boring to watch. I, I wish they just honestly just played it even crazier and just just do your own thing and don't keep falling back on like really hackneyed tropes that they're really committing to in a weird way where I just feel like this is like 1990s storytelling. Why are we doing this? But I'll say this. They're doing that on purpose though. It is intentional on their part. And I think that they're tapping into something that I'm not saying this is what I want, but I think there are large segments of the audience that do want that. And I think I, I try to judge films on what they're trying to accomplish, whether uh, more so whether it is kind of, um, you know, the next, you know, Goodfellas, uh, you know, like just one of those amazing films that you can't really ever match. So um, th- th- I- I'm sure this movie is just going to make uh, dollars and dollars hand over fist. I- Tom Hardy's guaranteed himself uh, like five more sequels if he wants to pursue them. I'm curious about where this Venom character uh, goes from here, because there's a very interesting post credit sequence that I think has pretty significant implications um, for, um, you know, comic book films. And I, I'm curious to see what happens next. Ah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, sure to what? <laughs> the future of Venom in uh, any sort of medium. I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Like, to me, this character's just not really clicking in a way that's interesting. So I'm like, okay, it, sure. It's not the character necessarily, but what the implications of the post credit sequence means for comic book films sure overall yeah like the things that I, i'm obviously trying not to spoil anything yeah, so yeah. That, that's kind of why I'm, I'm dancing around this so yeah so um i would say um one movie we all recommend one we think is really interesting you sh- and you should watch and one uh if yeah. you're really bored yeah yeah exactly <laughs> if you want one of those nights where you can be on your phone and like something's playing in the background put on um well, there's better stuff out there than Venom, Let There Be Carnage, but, you know. <laughs> the Tomorrow War. <laughs> oh, God. No, put on Venom. Put on Venom. <laughs> okay. So I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Tyler, what are we doing next week? season finale of Star Trek Lower Decks. And it's going to be an interesting month for us. Um, I think we have like a one week break between the finale and the premiere of Prodigy. So we'll be coming up with something interesting and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to Prodigy. Uh, Scott, do you plan on catching uh, Star Trek Prodigy uh, every week when it's uh, on the air? I don't think I will, funnily enough. I think I might catch the first episode and if it does wow me, then I'll keep coming back for more. But I really don't think I'm the target audience with this one. So I might be one of those, maybe I'll just catch up at the end of the season, unless you guys tell me it's fantastic. What are you guys planning on doing with it? I'll watch it every week, but I don't know if we'll podcast about it every week necessarily, Cam. I think that's what we've kind of decided. That seems to be the case, yeah. I mean, unless it really grabs us with that first episode and it gives us a lot to talk about, but 
I have my doubts that's the case. We, we might I have my doubts. We might do like, uh, we'll let three episodes accumulate and then kind of uh, do a podcast maybe every three weeks or something. That might be kind of the, the most practical thing to do. Okay. You can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V as in Vulcan Rebel Smith. I thought you were going to go with uh, Venom. Let there be Carnage Smith. <laughs> oh, I should have actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, you can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N, as in no time to spy hards. Listen to them <laughs> on uh, any podcast uh, feed that you can get. Scott, that cues you up perfectly. Well, there you go. I mean, I do have my own personal Twitter account, but I'm mostly found at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S-H, as in I'm homesick for Hawaii. <laughs> and we do have an hour-long episode on No Time to Die with spoilers for those who've seen it and want to hear our takes on it. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out. complete.